The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Somebody's dead. Now imagine somebody came up to you and said, I don't believe in words. But go, you know the you know the thing. You think that he was a fool. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I know I'm doing it really, really well. You wouldn't pull out a dictionary and give him evidence, and you wouldn't believe him. This is a mistake. Why would you call it that on your menu? Somebody comes up to you and says, I don't believe in God. We don't think they're a fool. No! We give them evidence. No! And we believe them. I'm not superstitious, but. I am a little stitious. When the Bible calls them fools, something has gone wrong. Yo, I had to wait till my dad fell asleep so I could steal his keys. Ready? I was born ready. It's about time that a talk show host comes along and shreds social commentary of the unnecessary fat of illogical, you know, inconsistent thought and gives you the rock solid truth and only that. Just give me all the bacon and eggs you have. So facts don't care about your feelings, right? But here's the other thing. Reality isn't waiting around for anyone to acknowledge it. Doesn't need it. You go by, you read some obscure passage and then pretend that you pawn it off as your own as your own idea just to impress some girls, embarrass my friends. When the scriptures are properly exegeted and that truth is proclaimed, it is authoritative whether we bow the knee to it or not. Wait, wait. I worry what you just heard was give me a lot of bacon and eggs. Do you believe there are a lot of logic then? I'm not prepared. I really am not. Absolutely. Are they universal? Yep. It's made with bits of real panther. They're agreed upon by human beings. They aren't laws that exist out in nature. They are. Are they simply conventions then? They're conventions, but they're conventions that are self-verifying. Rick, I've been meaning to talk to you about that. You should find yourself a safe house or a relative close by. Lay low for a while. Are they sociological laws or laws of thought? When they say 2% milk, I don't know what the other 98% is. They are laws of thought which are interpreted by men. So you know it's good. But they are who we thought they were! Promulgated by men. Are they material in nature? First of all, skis need wax. It's quite pungent. How can a law be material? They've done studies, you know. That's the question I'm going to ask you. 60% of the time, it works every time. Okay. My best advice to you? Yeah. Shut up. What is something that's immaterial? Brooksy, if I want to explain it to you, I would. Something not extended in space. You can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? Watch, watch it. I declare <laughs> bankruptcy! Being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the... All right, everyone. Welcome to Skiologians. I am your host, Ryan Cedarquist, and today it is our first ever Dry Fit Dialogues. And if you're wondering what, why we called this Dry Fit Dialogues, it connects to James White and Doug Wilson, the two pastors, one of them in Phoenix, Arizona, one of them in Moscow, Idaho, and they do some Zoom calls uh, probably about once every once a month, once every couple of weeks, called the Sweater Vest Dialogues, and uh, Doug Wilson happily wears a, a sweater vest up in Moscow, Idaho, and James White reluctantly, in 100-degree heat, puts on a sweater vest, and then they talk about theological issues and apply them to the world today. And that's what we have going on, a smaller scale, and uh, we have good friend Colin Brooks, the pastor of Redeemer Christian Fellowship in Roswell, New Mexico, and 
Colin was um, a pastor at Living Water in Alamosa, Colorado. That's where Christy and I first went to church when we moved to Alamosa, and we loved the, the church. And Colin taught us a uh, taught a great class on Wednesday about apologetics, kind of introduced us to the topic of presuppositional apologetics. And now, of course, we are um, running our own sort of introduction to presuppositional apologetics and a, a Bonson Project course, we're calling it, this year. And uh, really been enjoying it, but uh, all that's going on around us has uh, really made it easy to apply some of the concepts we are learning in our class and some of the basic presuppositional apologetics concepts. And so I thought it would be edifying to have Colin sit down and we would go through a couple specific topics. And they are presented by way of two articles that were written on Doug Wilson's blog. So here we go. All the sweater vests and dry fit dialogues are coming together. But anyway, I called the dry fit dialogues because you'll notice that Colin is dressed excellently like he should be, presentable um, like a pastor should be. And the cedar skier is presented as in his natural state in just a regular old dry fit t-shirt. And well, actually, I guess you won't see that, but but we do have the video files up too. If you want to watch this conversation um, as it happened face-to-face. You can see our facial expressions. We're going to try and post that up as well. But all of that is to say that um, this first episode, about an hour in length, we start out talking a little bit about blogging and what that role is for the Christian and and sort of share some insights and experiences there. We also just sort of uh, talk about basic presuppositional apologetics and how that has intrigued us and why we are convicted to be presuppositionalists, and that sort of leads us into our first conversation about free speech, and basically, is the Christian worldview the only thing that can account for free speech, and why the secular worldview, since free speech is not a part of it, uh, you will you will see that eliminated when the, when the secular worldview is fully embraced and run to its necessary conclusion. So we hope you enjoy this first episode of the you know, like, Dry Fit Dialogue. You know, like, just to throw this example out there, you know, you're you do all of these amazing sports, but they're not super popular. You know, like the Super Bowl right. is way more popular than a lot of these winter sports that you do. And you might have a ton of good reasons for why cross-country skiing or long-distance track is really – it's way better than football, but the country just doesn't see it that way. <laughs> you know, and, Right. And so kind of theologically, it's, it's happened the same thing with me. I think for a while I would get really – like I would, I, would get, I would get kind of, you know, hurt, like, man, I, I put a lot of work into this blog and basically Ryan and Kenan are the only people that appreciate it. <laughs> no, one really, no one really cares. And I was, I was really obsessed with like, but then I realized, you know, quite honestly, if I'm being honest with myself, the things that interest me just don't interest a lot of people. You know, I'm, I'm part of this Roman Catholic reform debate group on Facebook and they, those Roman Catholics in there are so smart and they ask some of the toughest questions and when I finally figure out what I think is a good answer to it, I blog it out. And I just realized like the questions that they're, that I'm interested in geeking out on in that group, these are not the questions that people in my church are asking me. They're not, they're not asking me about Ignatius's view of the Eucharist. Like that, right. doesn't, that doesn't interest them. And I can try to cram a, you know, a round peg into a square hole and try to make the culture care about Ignatius and they don't, <laughs> you know? And so I've, I've kind of been in this process now, and especially what you were saying with Facebook, also realizing like when I put something on Facebook, it's just not going to get a lot of traffic. Like it's, it's yeah. not going to go out to, unless I pay for, to boost it, you know, but so anyway, so I've, I've kind of at a point now where I'm just very comfortable, just like, I'm just going to write a blog and make a YouTube video and, 
if five people watch it, that's okay. If a thousand people watch it, that's great. You know, like not, not, not mock humility. I'm not saying I'll go look how humble I am, but I just have kind of released my desire to be like a famous YouTuber. I used to really want to be that. Like I want my blog. Yeah. But now I'm, I'm pretty content just saying if there's just a small little group of five people who really like what I'm disseminating, then I'll, I'm okay with that. Like I'll just try to bless those five people. And so kind of coming to grips with that, but yeah, I, I agree. Anyways, the whole point of that ran is to say, I agree with you. I think that the true skill that your pastor apparently has is how do you bridge those gaps and connect and make yourself interesting without compromising the message. And yeah, it, it definitely can be done. And I just don't think I have the skill or the desire to put in the work to do it <laughs> like he does, you know? Yeah, no, I think, uh, and by the way, I, I clicked, I started recording this cause I was like, this, this seems actually like a interesting that we're talking about this. Cause I, I think there's a couple of things I would say to that too, is what you're doing when I said, well, quality doesn't result in audience. It's like, yeah, but quality is kind of what matters. So I've kind of come to the scripts too of like on an athletic side for my blog, it's like how many people care about the intersection of even athletics and theology, probably very few, you know, and, and even fewer that would be endurance sports and, and mine, but it's like, yeah, if I'm blessing five people with really good quality, then it's totally worth it for the kingdom. And I think if for you, you know, like when you talk about those really detailed Roman Catholic controversy questions, that's actually something where like you could potentially still blow up, but it doesn't even really matter. It's like, I think it's kind of cool that you're the expert on that and you kind of dive into this really specific thing. I mean, we see that in like intellectual spheres. Like when I'm reading these papers for my thesis, it's like some of the titles are so specific and ridiculous. It's like, did this guy, like when he steps back, does he go, what a contribution to the world? Like, you know, and and it's like, we just discovered what, uh, what, uh, three weeks of doing, you know, 20 meter accelerations at 85% of VO2 max, how that impacts females age 16 and younger in double pull performance at four degree grades. Like, okay. You know, like that's great. But I think like the same thing could be said. It's like that, that does have a value because even though the audience is small, but so I think it is kind of tricky. And I kind of think and pray about pastor Tanner too. It's like, you also have that fine line of, the human nature being caught up in like the groups and the numbers and wow, now I've got a hundred thousand people, you know, like how is that going to affect your integrity too at moving forward, you know? And it would be very difficult to be honest, to be a theologian who's got 2 million people following you because all of a sudden you're probably going to be less apt to like say it how it is. If you think it might jeopardize that following and but I think the skill that he has to be honest and, and I'm, at least what I'm seeing right now is he takes you know, systematic theology, well-versed, well-read, and he understands, okay, given what I know, this is what I should say to the, to the grassroots beginner unbeliever who's asking this basic question. And I think that's a skill that we all could have if we were grounded in a lot of reading. You know, like he's read a lot, he's studied a lot. So he's not just coming in like, yeah, I kind of get what you're saying about that question. That is a super opinionated, you know, debated topic in, in our world too. It's like, he's coming in saying that, but he knows what the truth is and, and he's going to kind of work with them. And so I, I don't know, like, yeah, I, I, that's, that's something I'd be interested to get into. But again, when you start blowing up, then there's all sorts of other factors that start to start to come into play. 
I, I, to, and to give him credit though, it, it really is, um, it's, it's a pastoral heart, you know, because, and that's one of the things that I've, I've been learning in, in my own context where it's like, I've got, I've got these avenues of interest, of study and interest. And, um, like there's, there's these areas and these questions and these certain books that really interest me. And, but they don't interest the people in my church that much. They have their own questions. They have their own. Yeah. So pastorally speaking, what's my response? Is my response to stick my nose in the air and think I'm better than them and try to make them be more interested in my stuff? Um, I, I think to some degree, I do want them to, I do, I do think I need to shepherd them in, in maturing in their interests and what does interest them. But generally speaking, though, the pastoral heart is to say, okay, this is what they're concerned with. So I'm going to address those concerns. And I don't care about all that stuff that I think is really fun and cool. I'm, I'm going to take an interest in what they have an interest in. I, I think that's part of my job. So I, I do think it takes a true pastoral heart to say, I could talk about, you know, ABC on TikTok. Yep. And, and maybe 15 people would be interested, or I can take this stuff and, and, you know, and work it to where now it's going to meet the interests of a hundred thousand people. You know, I, I don't consider that compromise at all. I mean, that's, to me, that sounds more like, you know, Jesus's command to be, uh, you know, innocent as a dove, but as wise as a serpent, you know, there is, there is an element of, of, of not deception, but, you know, of sneakiness and brilliance and how can I take what should be interesting to them and make it interesting to them? You know, that's, that's a good way of saying it. Yeah. And, and I give Pastor Tanner a lot of credit because again, it's like, sometimes like I just will watch last night. I watched a video. I'm just like, how is some guy playing a shooter up game? How did he just ask that question? Yeah. Like, I can't get people in my own family to ask that question sometimes, you know, it's like, what? And, and so there, there's gotta be an art where he's got to that, but, but you're right. It's like, that is one thing where I think I have to challenge myself to, or if I, I mean, I don't do a ton of writing in theology on my post. I try to, you know, sometimes I'll mix up. I just posted something the other day about kind of like sportsmanship and stuff in it. So it was, I always try to like combine sports with, with theology, but in a much more basic way that like an athlete could read it and kind of maybe be let in. But, but I think sometimes I am much more guilty of holding up the big fat stack of book and, and just going, Oh, you must be unregenerate then since you're not interested in this, you know, versus yeah. Tanner's kind of gone in there and presented what those people should be interested in and got, gained this following. So it is, it's pretty interesting to watch and um, or kind of observe from the side. And yet, I mean, he's still, it's not like he's not taking care of his flock either. You know, I, I mean, he's, he is pastoring our church phenomenally and his wife is a very good musician who does a live stream thing. And I think they have just realized, whoa, the community that this is probably what Tanner, if he was here, he'd probably say like, dude, the community is out there. They're like getting a hundred thousand followers really wasn't that hard. That's where everyone is, you know, like we're not, we're no longer writing handwritten letters and passing them around. Like people are sharing 10 second TikTok videos. So if you want to immerse yourself or if you want to reach them, you might have to develop that skill. I think that's the point where I'm a little bit like, you know, the old school of my dad would say, Ryan, like you just stick to the principles and you, you know, just preach the gospel and it, it'll be effective. And I believe that I'm not like denying that. So where do I balance that line between really being in the world and trying to really immerse myself in 
how they're cooperating versus just going, I get that we only have three second attention spans now, but sorry. Yeah. Which I feel like it's kind of our Doug Wilson's take. He's like, yeah, I'm going to write a 30 minute blog, you know, that's going to take three minutes to read. And and if you're not going to read it, that's your loss. And sometimes I'm a little bit more that way too. So, which by the way, that's maybe a good transition of moving us into that. And, And I had, I don't know if you saw my notes too. I had like the two articles, um, the one of them was a little bit easier actually, but I, I just kind of posted it in there. Did you ever, did you read the biblical laws, the foundation for free speech one? Yeah. I listened to it on his podcast, but yeah, I, I received the information. Okay. Yeah. And so I, I read that one before our apologetics class on Wednesday and I was kind of like, oh my gosh, I got to like connect this to, you know, what we're doing in this class. And we didn't really do it because we're, we're still just kind of carving out some foundations and which this is hard. It brings me back, by the way, how a phenomenal of a job you did that apologetics class in 2017. Cause I was like, I'm sure Colin was in a similar position as me, where by the time you're ready to teach, you've read and listened to so many of the debates, you kind of lose track of where you might be versus where your audience is and like what you really want to talk about. And like, I'm reading Bonson's Van Til style book as I'm trying to teach and kind of lead a group who like maybe has never heard of presuppositional apologetics. So I'm like getting pressed with all this extra info, like, Oh, it's all making sense now. And then it's like, don't share it. They're not going to get it. I don't know. Do you, did you feel that too when you were teaching that class? Well, I hate, I hate to admit this, but I didn't, I, I kind of didn't, but that's because I think I came about it from a different way. I think that I did the exact opposite of you where I think I jumped in before I was ready. I think that, I, I found this new system and I loved it so much and it was so exciting and I listened to so many debates and I thought I had it figured out. And so I was like, okay, let's go teach this. And then I would do the class and like, honestly, you would ask questions and I would just be like, ah, I, I actually haven't thought that one through yet. <laughs> like For a long time, I honestly, I was shocked when I found, found out that you were so bought in because I would go home, like I would talk to Bo and I'd be like, Ryan probably hates presuppositionalism because I cannot answer <laughs> any of that guy's questions. He probably thinks this thing is a joke. So looking back on it, you know, like I, I think it was a mistake of me. I, I wish I would have done more reading before I mm. tried to teach that class. Cause even now I'm, I still love presuppositionalism. I, I firmly buy into it, but I, I have kind of taken a step back just to say, I, I don't think I know it as well as I thought I did. You know, like when I listened to, James White and Bonson and Cy Ten Bruggenkate, they're all kind of different. Like they, they still bring kind of their own flavor to it. And yeah, you, you know, you've even got, I read this year, I read uh, John Frame's apologetics book and John Frame is precept, but he expressed some of his issues with Vantillianism. And so that's why, I mean, honestly, if, if I had questions about presuppositionalism, I would come to you. I, I think you understand. Oh, gosh. No. Better reading on it than I have at this point. So, Well, uh, the, the, my only basic thing on it is that I buy in is that it appears Bonson makes a good enough satisfactory argument for me that the Bible commands us to be presuppositional. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And so that's kind of where, like, understanding – what I would say more is, and I, I just got this book. I don't know if you, the presuppositional apologetics explained. This is Greg Bonds and it's one, it's like 30 bucks on Amazon. It was the one I was panicking about that I, when we moved, it was buried away. And I thought I went on Amazon. It's like, you delivered this book. Are you enjoying it? And I'm like, where's that book? <laughs> Christy went and did, found it. But anyway, it's, it's a little bit like Van Til only a little simpler, but Bonson kind of, he is the expert, I think more on, 
the philosophical stuff. And he starts talking about stuff that is a little hard for me to understand, but it just is hard to digest. But he does a really good job of, I think, presenting the biblical foundation. And I got Jason Lyle, the book you read that kind of changed, you know, yeah. back in 2015, or uh, you know, Ultimate Proof. To me, that's kind of like, if you had never heard of it, it's a good one to start. Plus, he's a little more the scientific guy who can go toe-to-toe in that realm. And... So I think, I, I don't know, I'm definitely not an expert, but I kind of hold to that just one simple command of like, well, if the Bible says I should be presuppositional and there's some good evidence for that and it like, it does start to make sense. And it's like, I'll just, I'll run with it until otherwise. But honestly, like, I, I think I came in the back door. I was going to ask you this actually, because it's like, you know, they kind of, that example of like the ladder getting pulled up, you know, you, you use the ladder, you climb up. Uh, oh, I'm saying this all backwards. Um, to basically realize that you needed God as a foundation epistemologically, right? If, if you're, if you're using some other outside standard to determine that, then the outside standard is your authority basically. And I was kind of thinking, okay, but isn't it possible that I could see evidences and allow that to be the road by which I realize I needed God for evidence to begin with? Because sure. I, I think that is how most people come to it. And I think the one maybe straw man precept is that that's not the case. So I do try to make that clear with, with people, especially like my brother is much more, he's very smart and logical and sees things in these frameworks. So he, he would be, I think, someone more so who would go, well, I think you could kind of talk to a lot of people reasonably, giving them evidences and just kind of go, see how there kind of has to be a God. And, and I would kind of say, well, what you win them with is what you win them to. But at the same time, I'm a little bit, my, my own testimony is I had those evidences that convicted me first. And then I realized later that I needed God to be the epistemological foundation. And I think it's ironic if any presuppositionalist sort of denies that because that's kind of how they talk about hermeneutics. Like we use language to realize that we can use language and, and understand the Bible. So I don't know. I wanted to see what your thoughts were on that. And if that sort of realization has affected you from kind of being the side 10, Oh, yep. No, you need this. And he's different now than he was when he started, like you said, but yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I, I 100% agree. I think that the, where I've come to it in my presuppositionalism in this might sound like a simplification, but I think it's helpful, especially, you know, to lay people is I, to, to some degree, I don't want an apologetic method where I'm not allowed to tell the truth. Like I think in, in any apologetic method, I should be allowed to tell the truth. So if someone asks the question, is there evidence for God's existence? I think that the, the true answer to that is yes, which in the yep. presupposition would agree. And so to some degree, I think there needs to be a place where I'm allowed to tell the truth. I'm allowed to say, yes, there are, there is evidence for God's existence. And here, here it is like, here's some of it. Yep. But so, but to me where presuppositionalism comes in is when that, so I do believe that we, even within the framework, I can, we, we can, people can see evidence. God can convict them of the truth through it. They can come to faith. And then later on, they look at the evidence and say, oh, wow. I mean, technically I didn't even need this. Like technically, you know, yeah. Even ponder the question. I, I was actually presupposing God's world. You know, like, right, right. So, so yeah, and and I, I so yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. Um, there, because well, maybe the evidence is like the thing that's awakening the heart. Like Bonson kind of talks about how you're presenting the gospel. That's the mechanism by which the Holy Spirit sort of does this regeneration by there, wherein the believer or an unbeliever could come to faith. You know, and basically saying in their heart Christ is Lord. And I would say too, it's like true, but I think some people 
if you make clear the physical evidence, whether it's the fossil record or some other thing that, that you point out to them and it clicks, and that was the Holy Spirit's way of kind of showing them what they already know to be true, right? It was that, that's kind of val- just as valid, you know? Right. Exactly. Like one of, one of the criticisms, although the reason that I don't, it doesn't bother me is because I don't think it's a criticism of presuppositionalism. I think it's a criticism of a bad way that presuppositionalism is stated. So it's basically a straw man. But one thing that used to really kind of rattle me was, you know, people would say, so like, as, as they heard the presuppositionalist method explained to them, I think they, a lot of people had a good question where it's like, okay, so you're telling me like, I can't, I can't give someone evidence and then that evidence is not going to convince them or change them or make them realize the truth. But that, but still presuppositionalism is still functionally the same thing, right? Like when I, when I explain to somebody that you, you need God to even make sense of evidences, that's still, it's kind of like a form of evidence in a way. Like I'm still, I'm still presenting a logical argument that's convincing them of something and changing their mind. Right. Just like functionally speaking, why is it that my logical argument for presuppositionalism has the ability to change people, but this evidence can't, you know? So like, I think that, uh, what, what bad presuppositionalism eventually unravels into is it just unravels into just the Holy spirit just has to do it on his own because evidence can't change someone's mind, logical reasoning and arguments can't change someone's mind, (laughs) but we're making logical arguments in presuppositionalism. So why, why do we do apologetics at all? You know? And and again, that's why I'm saying, I don't think true presuppositionalism says you can't ever present evidence. Evidence cannot change someone's mind. Logical arguments can't change someone's mind. Yeah, that's all straw man, I think. Right, exactly. Uh, exactly, yeah. I The way I see it, and this is the other thing that's been a really big click for me, is <clears throat> what I've tried to kind of describe as maybe the art of evangelism. And like the principle that we need to hold to is that we are presuppositional because the Bible commands us, but the way we engage with the unbeliever is to answer them and then answer them. So we answer them according to this folly. Then we answer them not in accord, right? The Proverbs verse. So the idea that I embrace their worldview in the sense that I go, okay, let's pretend that you, what you're saying is true. And then you kind of expose the inner inconsistency, this inconsistency that is existing there. And then, you know, kind of basically, you know how you taught it to me, us too, is well, now you've just shot holes into the unbeliever's boat and that's not the end of the job, right? And, and to humbly, graciously, and I would even say artfully, depending on the person you're dealing with, present them the truth of what you have, the foundation you're standing on. And so that's the second answering. And that's the part where you don't compromise at all. Because if you compromise, all you're doing is cutting out the legs of the bridge that the Holy Spirit was intending to walk across into that person's heart. You know, so when we try to go, when anytime we compromise the gospel, we're just taking away that instrument. And so it is kind of a poor argument of like, well, the Holy Spirit's just got to do it. Yeah, you're right. And and the means by which it is going to do it is you presenting the truth. So you need to know the truth. Uh, that that's at least kind of, you know, that those two things is I would, you know, anyone who gives me the straw man arguments like, no, no, I am going to enter their world. I'm not going to do the Mexican standoff. I don't know how RC Sproul didn't like understand that. Cause I think him and Bonson like sat on an airplane, like, well, isn't it just, you, you know, you know, you're in a Mexican standoff and you, you've got your God, they've got their God. And now the conversation's over. It's like, well, how did, 
No, like, no, now I'm going to, as the Christian, embrace their worldview and answer according to their folly and then present it. So I don't know, like that, that, that concept in Proverbs, when it finally kind of made sense to me, it's like, oh, that's where this is connected. And, and think about how that verse wouldn't make sense if presuppositionalism wasn't really. I, I, I would like to look into commentaries and, and applications of that verse from non-presuppositionalists. Cause I, I agree. I, it, it's, you know, it's kind of like Sai always talks about how it's interesting because this is a verse that, that looks like it's contradictory, you know, yeah. just from, just from a, a, a brief overview, not really doing much reading. It looks kind of contradictory, like do this, right. this don't do this. And he said, and he kind of made the point, like, isn't it funny that they're back to back? Like he said, usually when you find a, a, you know, these alleged Bible contradictions, it's because Paul said something way over here. <laughs> said something way over here. You got to look at the context to find it out. But this yeah. one, it's like the same sentence. Yeah. It's not hidden. It's, it's the same sentence. The same writer is saying, hey, do this, but don't do this. And, and I agree the the presuppositional harmony and understanding of that was, was really instrumental for me. And I just don't know how you apply. I, I just, I don't know how that doesn't, I don't know how that fits into a non-presuppositional apologetic. You know, I'm, I'm sure there are decent answers out there, but to me, it seems much more consistent with the presuppositional apologetic. And, um, and I, it was, it's kind of like, this might be a little off track, but I, one of the main things that clicked for me when I first fell in love with presuppositionalism was, so before I was a presuppositionalist, you know, I, before I found the guys that were doing it, I was just listening to the popular apologists because that was all I knew, you know? So I was yeah. listening to Robbie Zacharias and William Lane Craig. And, and I remember Robbie Zacharias, when he would talk about the problem of evil, he would respond to it. It was basically presuppositional, but he would, he would phrase it his own way. And he kind of called it like the, the, the evil pyramid. And he said, like, on the bottom, you've got evil. But in order to have evil, you have to have a law of what is good and what is bad. But in order to have a law, you have to have a lawgiver. But the problem with this atheistic objection is they take away the lawgiver. So once the lawgiver is gone, what do you then lose? Then you lose the law. Now, once you've lost the law, what do you lose? Good and evil. Once you've lost good and evil, what do you lose? Evil. So there's, you can't object to the Christian worldview with all this evil because without God, there's no such thing as evil. And I thought like, oh, wow, that, that's a, and I'm, this was long before I knew of presuppositionalism. I thought that's such a good response. Like you can't even make sense of good and evil without God. But what I loved about presuppositionalism is it opened my eyes to saying this. Okay. So it, it appears God is so great. He's because he's the author of all things. He's necessary for morality. And all of us presuppositionalists and non-presuppositionalists, when we argue morality, we argue the same way. Like without God, what, what is evil? What is good? How do you even know? By what standard, right? But what I loved about presuppositionalism and said, how can we, how is it possible that God is necessary for morality, but nothing else? Like, so when we talk about morality, we all come together and say, without God, how do you even have morality? Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about science now. And suddenly <laughs> the non-presuppositionalist departs. And they appear to think you can have science without God. So let's use it and try to get them to God. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking, well, why didn't you do that with morality? Like when they brought up moral objections, your first response was you, morality doesn't belong to your worldview. Interesting. But once they bring up scientific objections, it's like, okay, yeah, we've all got science. Let's try to use it as a tool to get to God. 
Right. So for me, like it, what I loved about presuppositionalism, that's it basically taught me that either God is necessary for all things or for nothing. Like if you don't if you just pick and choose morality without God, then I don't think I can have logic without God. I don't think I can have science without God. I, and if I can have logic and if I can have science, if I can have all these things, even hypothetically without God, then why can't I have morality without him too? You know, so to me, it just presupposition was this package deal that was so attractive to me. Where it's like, God is not just necessary to have morals, to objective morals. He's necessary to have anything. <laughs> and, 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 and to me, that was the consistency. It was that consistency. And, and then it was the verses like Proverbs and some of the New Testament verses about the Lordship of Christ. And I just, I never see a place in the New Testament for pretending like Jesus isn't Lord and then working toward that conclusion. Like yeah, just, that's the other thing I was like, let's just agree for the sake of argument. He's not Lord. Yeah. And we, we can convince them that he is like to me, the apostolic point is this is something we know to be true and we're never going to depart from this. Not even hypothetically. Uh, yeah. And, and I would even say like, cause I think that what I, in my art of evangelism, I would say, I would say the first part of that with the unbeliever. Okay. Let's just pretend that there is not a Lord, but I would never say, let's just pretend there is not a God and then get to God. That, that, that's the, that's the difference, right? Is like, yeah, I should have clarified that better because of the Proverbs thing. Yeah. There, there is, there is a way when we hypothetically pretend he's not Lord as Proverbs says to show the absurdity. Right. of their I think that distinction is important for some people who might go have doubts about presuppositionalism in uh initially because they think it seems so unrealistic and it's like well you're never gonna how, how do you even where do you have that point of contact kind of you know as van till would say but um yeah i <laughs> those are some really really good points about i we could probably like just go off on these rabbit trails forever about <laughs> no i love it i love it i i was just thinking of something i wanted to say and, and you articulate these things so well so it's i i need to do a better job of just letting you talk too <laughs> trust me no well so i i read that the free speech article yep and was waiting on it. But then I want, what we really want to talk about was the next one, but I, I guess I, so I have these notes and I've got them on my screen. I don't know if you have it on yours. I'm, I don't think I, Actually, I'm not going to, I'm not going to share my screen. I could do that. Although, well, if I just upload the audio, maybe it's not that big a deal. So if you want, I can share it. What I have. Oh, I no, think I've got the notes with me. So you just do whatever. Okay. You- Okay. Well, so what I was going to see is to say about this, this one is basically Wilson's thesis was only the biblical worldview provides the foundation for free speech and freedom of religion. <clears throat> so obviously the connection there with presuppositionalism is, hey, look, the antithetical, the antithetical worldview has no reason to um, protect free speech. It's not a part of their worldview. It's not a value that they have. And then um, he gave this so that, that was kind of the first part. And he quoted Francis Schaeffer. Well, first he, he kind of mentioned the declaration, right? Like it even says in our own declaration that the reason is we're endowed by our creator. So that brings up a whole nother can of worms where like, you know, at the inauguration, we see the people like swearing on the Bible and then we're just saying those things. And in my head, I'm like, this will not be something that happens for much longer, right? Like where we swear on the Bible, where we have endowed by our creator, like at what point are they going to just take that out completely? So that's another can of worms I was kind of thinking about, but, but uh, anyway, Francis Schaefer says, if there's no absolute by which to judge society, then society is absolute. 
not only is society absolute, but it is arbitrary and absolute. And I think that connects with what Bonson has said in this book too, that I'm reading where kind of the antithetical worldview always has to deal with relativism. It can't escape that. And so here we are, we're in a world today where basically everyone is pretty okay with submitting to the government as being absolute, even in the church, kind of saying, if someone's like, well, when are you going to open up church again? Well, when the government says it's okay, <clears throat> you know, and, and, um, and I think obviously the unbeliever is totally okay. Kind of submitting to the government as that authority, but it is a little bit frightening that we're even seeing the church really behave in such a way that they're sort of the ultimate judge. But yeah. What, what were your thoughts on that first sort of opening thesis, basically saying that, you know, we're the only ones who can account for this. And he, he gave like historical background on it, which I didn't really go back and look at. That was sort of my notes, his timeline where he said Christian world, then post-Christian world, then anti-Christian world. And I wrote out, I want, kind of wanted to read the article, but I think for the sake of time, you know, our listeners, maybe they can go into it. And if we, if we have specific quotes, we can bring them up. But essentially saying like in the 1600s here, we had like real Christians, real Protestants with, you know, they were like you said, they assumed the revelation of God as the foundation. They actually assume that. And then there was this thing called the enlightenment, which really, in my opinion, was like the turning point where man said, again, from, you know, after Adam and Eve, obviously, but that was the turning point modern wise, where we decided that man could be the final um, arbitrator of truth. So we had like, again, there's this reawakening of now there's this split, you know, there's the people who assume God's revelation is the foundation and people who assume man. And as we've moved towards that, like the man one has been sort of the rational one. And the other one is like the crazy people, but the rational one is, has been borrowing capital as, as Wilson mentions, like, they've been borrowing all this capital from the Christian worldview in terms of free speech, in terms of um, all the values that really kind of made America, America. <clears throat> and then we went into the anti-Christian world and that's kind of where we are today. And in the anti-Christian world, you know, essentially it seems to me what he's saying is we're at the point now where the secular worldview is actually being lived out to its necessary conclusions. So that's kind of what I got from it. What was your read on it? Yeah. So, uh really all I would do is, um, is, is he, this, this short blog, he shares a lot of these thoughts in a book that I read of his called empires of dirt. Ooh, interesting. Uh, okay. Empires of dirt. And this is basically a primer on Christian theocracy. Um, but, but the way, the way he describes the thesis of this book is, is he basically says, could you explain what Christian theocracy is? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the idea that there is no neutrality, right? This presuppositional idea that there is no neutrality. And so a, a government is going to have some kind of philosophical guidance. Um, and, and we would call that in all forms, theocracy. So as a presuppositionalist, Doug Wilson, who is a presuppositionalist would argue that there is always a God that is creating your form of government. So theos is, is, is God and ocracy where we get the word, you know, for democracy, it's a form of government. God rule is basically what it means. And so a Christian theocracy is essentially saying a government that is established on the Lordship of Christ, a government that would honor God's word as its highest document. And, and Doug Wilson's point in every presuppositionalist point is that uh, in our modern context, we tend to think of 
we have like a secular democracy, which is like a neutral government. So there's no religion. Yeah. Everyone has freedom of religion. You can be whatever religion you want because there's no religion dictating things here. And Doug Wilson's point is there is a religion dictating here. Uh, Theocracy is inescapable. And, And so here's what happens. People think that secularism is where religious liberty comes from. That's what people think. Because the assumption is, if I live in a Christian theocracy, I have to be Christian. If I live live in a Muslim theocracy, Sharia law, I'm going to have to be Muslim. So the only way for me to have freedom to be whatever I want is a a government that has no religion, a non-religious government, a, a government that doesn't respect religion. And so our assumption And this is why even a lot of Christians, most of this book is actually geared towards Christians because he knows if a Christian were to say, I think the United States government needs to be established on the the reign and authority of Christ. It's Christians who are going to be the ones to say, no, 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 no. We don't want theocracy. We want, you know, religious freedom and secularism. (laughs) Yeah. So essentially what he argues in this book is that secularism is not actually what gives you religious freedom. And Uh, the, he, he argues it in a really interesting way where he compares what the three predominant worldviews that are battling it out in the Western world right now. And it's Christendom, uh, um, Islam, and secularism, right? Like we, Europe and America was once very Christian, and now they're very secular. But what are we seeing in Europe? We're seeing a rise not of secularism or Christianity, but Islam. And basically what he sets out to do in this book is to say, okay, we have these kind of presuppositional values, religious freedom, the right to life, the right to liberty. Of these three systems, whoever wins, let's let's look at each one of them winning out. Let's say one day Muslims control the whole world and they control the government and then seculars control the whole world and Christians. In which of those realized systems are you actually going to have freedom to worship how you want to worship? And he says... If, 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 uh, if Muslims take over Sharia law, he says, you will not have religious freedom. But then he argues in the book, if secularism takes over, you don't have religious freedom. And so his thesis in the book is Christianity is the only religious system that actually gives you religious freedom. And he says somewhere in here that it will protect your rights more than Islam or secularism will. And of all, of all the craziness that's happening today, the one of the few good things is I think Doug Wilson is starting to be vindicated because what are we seeing now in our highly secular world? We are not seeing this push to establish freedom of speech and freedom of religion. We live in cancel culture. We live in censor- censorship culture. We, we live in a culture where I, I still have some friends from college who are radical secularists and they'd make no bones about it. They don't even hide it. They would love to see me and my family hauled off to be, um, de-radicalized to be, uh, you know, we, we have all of this propaganda term Orwell talks about the political, the propaganda, propagandization, whatever that word would be. Uh, yeah. Orwell has a great essay on political speech. I won't get into now, you know, they'll call it, they'll soften the language, you know, they won't call them, you know, deprogramming or, or, um, you know, religious indoctrination. It'll be called things like, uh, like de-radicalizing. In Europe, they're starting to do that. You can report your friends that look too Muslim. If they look and sound too Muslim, then they, they, will, they can be reported and sent off to these de-radicalizing uh, lessons. And, and what is like the government doing? Joe Biden just passed a 
you know, a, an executive order to teach, you know, basically the theories on race and through the right. government. So we have like different political terms for what we call it to soften it up. But the bottom line is, was what we are seeing in our secular government is the imposition of thoughts and values. You must think this way. You must believe this way. And if you don't, you will not have a voice. You will not have a platform. And we are going to try to find systems and education programs so you can be enlightened. And so what what we are seeing is secularism has no interest in letting me think what I want to think. Right. And uh, it's, it really is only among Christians. Like I I can honestly say as a Christian, I have no desire to see my secular friends hauled off to some camp where they're going to be force fed to believe Christianity upon penalty. I, I would love to let my secular friends be secular and believe the gospel can change their hearts. I don't need a government training program to make them Christians. But what we're seeing from secularism is my friends are afraid that I'm believing these bronze age, archaic, homophobic, uh, Islamophobic beliefs. And so they want me deprogrammed. Right. So I, I think Doug Wilson's thesis is being proved right before our eyes that secularism does not give you the freedoms that you think it does. And then I know I'm rambling. Just the last thing I'll say is, it's also helpful specifically for conservatives. Um, in other words, Doug Wilson's point is that even if you're a conservative and you're like kind of anti all of this, you know, anti-free speech crackdown and stuff, merely being a conservative is still not helpful. And he talks about in this book, um, for example, and this is the same point of the blog as well, I think. He says this, Western values have value only if they are a coded way of referring to something else. And that something else cannot be another horizontal fact like representative government or women's rights or anything like that. That just pushes the question back a step. Why should we prefer those? And his his point is simply this, like conservatives are very interested in protecting free speech, protecting democracy and, 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 and all of these things, religious liberty. But Doug Wilson, this is what you said at the beginning. He's essentially asking the question, why should I care about those? Like Islam does not care about those. Is Islamic theocratic rule is not interested in that, and they don't shy away from that. They're not embarrassed by that. And so the point is, is how do I know religious freedom is actually good? How do I know as a conservative, that's something we want to conserve? And so Doug Wilson's point is conservatism is not an end-all be-all. Conservatism is only good if the things you're conserving are good. And you can't appeal to conservatism to determine the things you're conserving our good. That would be circular reasoning. So what he's arguing in the book is you need an objective standard that determines religious liberty, good, freedom of speech, good. Now let's adopt a political system that conserves these things. Yeah, that's that, that's the thing in the, the the where I grew up in the Midwest. And we had this conversation in our last class about how I was kind of making the point that one of the sickliest things in our churches right now are people who live in sort of safe places where their conservative values are honored and and respected and everyone kind of all thinks that so no one has ever thought about why those conservative values are important they they haven't even thought about answering that question and which all, which not only prevents them from from sharing it you know and having the presuppositional foundation which would enable them to do that but then when they go out to the wolves they're quickly eaten up you know by other viewpoints and they they are made to look as bigots who don't understand That's right. you know yeah and, and, and this goes back to what we were talking about with presuppositionalism. Um, 
presuppositionalism is so helpful because it, it forces us, like you said, to get to the very bottom of things and not make any of these of these assumptions. And, and here's where you, you see it happening. You can tell that just people in general are not used to thinking presuppositionally because whenever somebody questions like how we know something to be true, we always interpret that as they disagree with us that it is true, right? So if, if you were to come up to me and say, um, you know, if you were to come up to me and say like long distance skiing is better than, than football. And I were to say, it'd be objectively true in that case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I would say, Oh yeah. How do you know that to be true? Prove that. Obviously I'm disagreeing with you. Right. But a lot of times in presuppositionalism, we're not disagreeing with their conclusions, but we're trying to point out the arbitrariness of their. Exactly. <laughs> no, that people are so charged though. You're, exactly. you're exactly right. If, if you present that as, how do you know that to be true? They are first assuming that you disagree, which is like, a, I'm actually just wanting you to provide a foundation for this. Well, yeah. 100%. You know, they come up and, and they complain about rape and God allows rape. How do you know rape is wrong? And they, you, you don't think rape is wrong? What is that? I'm like, no, I, I, I know it's wrong. I'm a Christian, but I, I'm, I'm curious in how you know it's wrong. And we have to have those conversations all the time. And here's, but this is the point you are making. We have to have those with conservatives. And that's yeah. the yeah. conservatives walk around and say, oh, I hate the left because they're curbing free speech and they're taking away our freedoms. How do you know free speech is good? Yeah, they wouldn't be able to answer that, 95% of them. Because, uh, because the Declaration, the Constitution. Well, those aren't eternal documents. Like someone made those documents, relatively speaking, not that long ago. How do you know they made a good document? Like, and again, I'm not disagreeing. I think they're great documents, but it, it just to your point, like we have to learn to think presuppositionally. And Doug Wilson's point is when you do that, you will find that you can't just arbitrarily assert religious freedom is good. You can't just, you can't just make that up out of thin air. You have to be able to ground that. And so his point is, if that can only be grounded in the Christian worldview, then only a Christian government will be able to provide it for you. So this is interesting how you brought up those. I hadn't really heard, you know, this idea that there's the three kind of superpower worldviews, you know, at stake here, Christian, Christianity, Islam, and secularism. And so if I'm hearing you, he's kind of saying, if any one of those powers takes over secularism, if run to its necessary conclusion, you won't have free speech, which you're right. We're seeing that being kind of vindicated now. Islam would would be the same thing, which I don't know enough about the Islam religion to go, yeah, I can concur with you there. Like I can see the inner details. What I am curious about is if you say, but with Christianity, then we're good. We're going to have these things. How do we reconcile the claim though, that as presuppositionalists, we say, honor Christ as Lord, like, would there be a confusion there where like, is that part of the declaration? So now if I don't honor Christ as Lord, am I kicked out of the country? You know what I'm saying? Like, how do we spell out religious freedom from a biblical foundation? Because that would be my question actually is, yeah, if we, if we were to, I mean, obviously we, we claim to be a biblical nation, you know, founded in, so we, we kind of actually are, the answer is, well, America has sort of had done that, but how do you use the Bible to go, yeah, Jesus would have been okay with you following other religions because obviously Christ would say, no, it's a sin to honor, to not, to not worship me alone. So how would you answer that? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. And just so you know, <laughs> just for your own personal, if you're ever interested, he, he does get into that a little bit. He calls it the mere Christendom alternative and, and, and he does talk about that. And also, let me just back up. I wasn't necessarily agreeing with him. I was just kind of trying to say where he was coming mm -hmm. from. I mean, I think largely I would agree with him, but I agree. I don't know enough about these systems where I would want to 
take on the debate necessarily. Yeah. What's interesting is, is the way he actually kind of, the way he kind of presents the book is almost as if, um, so Islam is on the rise and who actually has a worldview that can stop this? And his point is secularism is, is too devoided of any meaningful, intrinsic, objective, transcendental value to go head to head with Islam. So really his, his, his point is actually a secular government, not only in and of itself is going to strip you of your rights, but it's ultimately going to lose to the Muslims as well. Like that's, that's like, I'm not saying he's right or wrong, but that's yeah. kind of how he presents the book um, that secularism does not have the arsenal to fight Islam's worldview. They're going to lose. And his point is we're seeing them lose in Europe. Europe's losing right now. And his point is we're going down the path of Europe. So relatively speaking, it's only a matter of time. And I, I think if I recall, that's kind of how he presents it. But yeah, back, back to your question. Uh, you know, that is good. I think to some degree, there are, I don't think anyone should pretend as if any governmental system is easy. Um, it, I don't think even the right governmental system, when you're talking about trying to govern 320 million people divided up into 50 states, it's always going to be difficult. It's always going to take nuance and complexity. So I don't think I have like an easy, you know, invite how to perfectly implement a Christian, a Christian worldview, but sure. I do think that there. Uh, but I do think that we do see uh, general principles in the New Testament of um, a lot of of differentiating between sins and crimes. And uh, so, for example, the man in First Corinthians five who was guilty of a, a very serious sexual sin, Paul's response was not throw him in prison or kill him. It was just excommunicate him from the church. And then Paul even goes on to say, what business do I have in judging outsiders? And so we see, but what's interesting is Paul, when he does that, he quotes the Old Testament texts for capital punishment and applies them to church excommunication. So the first thing I would say, this is the reason why I'm not like a classical theonomist, because I think Paul has a redemptive way of applying the Old Testament texts in the New Testament. So in other words, I, I don't think, um, like in the Old Testament, well, I don't think we should necessarily just pick up all the capital punishment of the Old Testament and apply it in the New. Because I don't, I don't think Paul operated that way. But the point is, is even when you go into the Old Testament, uh, I'm not sure how much uh, evidence we have that non-believers were uh, you know, were killed or even excommunicated. Um, but then even if they were, they apply. So now I'm kind of rambling, but here's the point is I, I do think the new Testament provides us with enough information to determine the difference between a sin and a crime. And people are allowed to sin in a Christian culture. Like we don't, we don't make sin, all forms of sinning a crime. Um, and I, I, like I said, so I don't, I don't have like I, I guess to exhaustively answer it, we would have to discuss every single yeah. issue. But generally, I guess my general answer would be, I, I do think the New Testament is sufficient in determining the difference between a sin and a crime. And so, yes, worshiping in a Mormon church on Sunday morning is sinful, but I don't think it's a crime. I don't think it should be a crime. And I, I think the New Testament is sufficient in that. 
I think this, it's interesting now that you brought up that book and sort of laid out the, this is what the book says. Cause now I see all that kind of bearing out in the article too, of some of those key points. And, and I think if I would, if someone were to ask me, well, okay, I'll run with you for a second. So, so what you're saying is basically what, what Doug Wilson says is you should let the Christians do it because they know how to do it. The pagans don't, you know, in terms of running a government, that was his line, yeah, I think. Yeah, precisely. And, and I was kind of like, I, I think how I would connect that to some of the basic foundational theological principles that I believe the Bible is very clear on, such as, you know, there are sheep and there are goats, is I would just say, well, let the Christians handle the government because you'll get your free speech, you'll get all these things. And we know too that not everyone's going to be saved. So we're not calling for you to worship our God. We're just, uh, we're just basically saying, if we want to have some of these principles that maybe Ben Shapiro would say, I hate it when he says, you know, all these, these principles that we can kind of all agree on. That's what he says. You know, like there's these, there's these values that we all should be able to agree on. It's like, Ben, uh, well, actually it's a great example of, you know, everyone's borrowing capital from the Christian worldview. Cause he's kind of right. Just the innate human nature should kind of agree on that, but it, it doesn't comport with everyone's worldviews. So, you know, if you could just explain to one person, whoever has all the power, explain to the president, like, look, you're going to have to be basically have a Christian government. If you want this to work the way that everyone will be happy, you know, <laughs> and kind of have general rights. And, and then to that individual person, no, you don't have to honor Christ as Lord, but you're going to have to live in a government that is based on the foundation that Christ is Lord. Because if we don't, we're going to have craziness. We're going to have people doing things that are so abhorrent that we will, you know, uh, will kill ourselves. You know, Romans, Romans one will basically end up happening. I don't know. Like that. I think you're right though. There is sort of, you'd have to like dive into each and every detail, but I think that's my simple response as a Christian would be the only far, the government, the form of government you want is one that's founded on Christian principles. It really is. And, and the, and the secular government is going to, is going to stray far from that. So, uh, and, and, and I like how you bring that point. Like that doesn't mean we are as Christians saying everyone needs to be a Christian. What we're saying is the form of government that would be best for most people would be one based in Christian principles, which is basically what the declaration was, which I think is why conservatives probably are kind of on their heels going, Oh my gosh, where are we headed? Because when we start to throw out those underpinnings, you know, the necessary conclusions when run are going to be frightening to us. And it will be frightening to the unbeliever too. I think that's one thing that I sometimes hold to is like, isn't there a part in the Bible too, where like God, you know, we, the unbeliever suppresses the truth that they know then they start, God responds by basically letting them run wild. And then even when they run wild, they kind of go, whoa, like where we've got, we've come way too far, you know? And like almost, I don't know. This is why I'm hot. This is why I'm hot. This is why. If you enjoyed this episode, we would encourage you to come back and listen to our second segment where we talk about the events of January 6th. We talk about just the state of the world in general, masking, um, government overreach, and end times. And we sort of relate all these things together. Um, it was a really fun discussion. We were really happy to have Colin on. Part two of the Dry Fit Dialogues will be coming to you shortly. So thank you for listening. And uh, please follow our page on cedarskier.com and follow our podcast on Anchor as well, the Cedar Skier Podcast and Skiologians. Have a wonderful day.